0: us you can be seated man y'all look good y'all look far away you know you don't have to be afraid to sit close I don't spit okay I do spit but it only lands on the people down here and so I love all of you people down there in the pit you guys are awesome and you are like my heroes and uh, you know sometimes things don't go the way we plan but uh, God is always good so All right, well, we are (coughs) in a series that um, we're always in a series. You just might not know which one. Um, We kind of started it last week, but it was also kind of an overlap from the series when we were talking about our core values. Um, We're talking about who we are as a church. It's no secret, unless you're brand new, that our church has changed a lot over the last several years. And we've been on this journey to just look at the scripture and try to become the church God wants us to be. Uh, We changed our name, we changed our logo, we changed our location, Um, we've changed just about everything, and not just for the sake of change. You know that some of those changes took a long time to process, and I guarantee you they took a long time to marinate in our leadership team before they ever even came to the full body. And so this is something that has been happening for a number of years, and in fact, in some ways it's been happening almost all of my life. Just over these last few weeks as I was praying about some things, uh, I realized that the Lord has brought me to a place, and He is fulfilling a word that was spoken over my life in 1997, I believe it was. 97, yeah, ish. Um, And so, and I didn't even realize it until this week. And so, this journey that we're on, last week we took a turn and we started talking about what it's like to live in the tension of the kingdom of God, because there is tension in the kingdom of God. And I don't know, unless you're um, one of those like zealot type of people, you don't like tension. I mean, when you walk into a room and you feel tension or, you know, husbands and wives, if you're, you know, there's tension in the room, you're not talking about stuff or you're, um, you're secretly taking those jabs at each other that some people are picking up on, but others are not. The kids are always picking up on it by the way we think we hide our our things from them but they're they're very wise but there's this tension in the kingdom. the kingdom is already here and yet the kingdom is not yet here in the kingdom of God you exalt yourself in order to, and you get humbled but you humble yourself in order to get exalted and there's all of these seeming contradictions and tensions and we talked about last week about the, we like these perfect lines and these perfect boxes, and I'll be the first to admit that's me. I like an ordered life. I am type A. I am red, blue. I am D on the disc scale. I am, um, uh, you know, I am that person. I want everything structured and ordered. Um, and oddly, the word I said that God is fulfilling in my life is, has to do with that, because God has given me that. That's not a curse, okay? Okay. So for those of you that tell you, for those people that speak that over your life, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's just because you're like that. Um, God gave you that for a reason in your personality. But you can misuse it. Mm, man, do I misuse it at times. I really did a long time ago, but I've gotten better. And I want to try to fit things into boxes that God's like, I didn't create that to be in a box. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed that nature doesn't grow in straight lines ever. Did you ever notice that? Roots never grow in straight lines. Limbs don't grow in straight lines. Flowers don't grow straight. I mean unless we force it to happen in nature. Nature doesn't happen in rows and columns and order. I mean so it should tell us something about our God that he's okay with some of this tension and this mess. And I know that it's sometimes when we start talking about it we're tempted to be like oh that's a sl- you're saying this. No, no I'm not saying that. But it, I am saying it, but I'm also saying this. And, well, you can't say both of those. They contradict. Well, I welcome to the wonderful world of Jesus. He did it all through the Gospels. And then we think that the the Apostle Paul came along and put everything back in boxes, and that's just because we don't know how to read the Apostle Paul. And we kind of read him through the lens of our box, Western theological, you know, Paul was making this outline, and Paul's all over the place. He is not putting things in these nice, neat boxes. And so... If you like perfect answers and and you don't like messy middle stuff, this is going to be a hard series for you, and it's probably going to be a hard church to be a part of. Um, And last week, we talked about what are you doing here? That was the question. We looked at the life of Elijah and how God spoke to him and the danger of having zeal for the Lord without mercy or without being a part of the community of faith and how we need zeal and community. And I forgot to tell you, when God reprimanded Elijah last week, well, he didn't do it last week, but uh, <laughs> he did here. And, uh, you know, that whole thing where God spoke in the or he was in the silence. God was in the silence. That's supposed to tell Elijah. And this is how I take it. That I am working in 7000 ways in the silence that you don't even see. So stop saying you're the only one. Stop saying this. Stop saying like that. This is hopeless. You're no better than your ancestors. Who do you think you are? I mean, God says all of that in the silence. Elijah gets it. It clicks. That's why he covers his face with his cloak, because God's there. And in the, and an instant, he realizes, oh, God's doing stuff I'm totally unaware of. So remember that. I know that sometimes we, go, we fly off the handle because we think, you know, God has appointed us. And we need to make sure that we take our zeal for the Lord. And we balance it with that mercy for people. It was really about the Pharisees. And so today, we're going to ask this question Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? If you've got a Bible, go to Matthew 21. Um, You know, we may have already asked that question a lot this morning. (laughs) Do you know what you're doing? Have you ever put that together before? Uh, we're a little shorthanded due to the the holiday, and so, um, some people are working on things they've never worked on before, and it just, you know, that's the way it goes. And so, I do feel like that's the question we've asked, but I don't know, um, generally when I pop the hood of a car, that's what people ask me, (laughs) and there's a reason for that, (laughs) because most of the time I don't know what I'm doing. In fact, one time my dad was stationed in Guam during Desert Storm, and, uh, so I was the man of the house, (laughs) and, uh. My mom and sister stopped for gas, and uh, they're like, like, you're a quart low on oil. oil." And my mom's like, oh, well, my husband has some at home in the basement, so we'll put it in when we get home. So they come home, and they're like, you know, put it in. So I'm like, okay, I'll go put it in. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out where it went in. Um, (laughs) I mean, keep in mind, I was 14, and I didn't grow up on a farm, okay? So I grew up in a city. So it's not a problem that I didn't know where it goes. I do now. Um, But it it just dawned on me, like, well, I'll just pour it in where the dipstick is. Like, it goes to the same place. (laughs) I didn't realize there's more than one dipstick. Um, So I poured it in the transmission, and so you know what happened next. Um, We had to have the transmission flushed, and that little quart of oil cost us a lot of money. So when I lift the hood of a car, people are like, do you know what you're doing? No, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to look like I do so someone feels bad for me and helps. (laughs) So... But what I want us to think about today is, do we know what we're doing? Because a lot of times we go to the scripture and we take it and we read it a certain way and we use it. But I want us to make sure we know what we're doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. He is super intentional. Some people believe that when Jesus walked the earth, he knew stuff because he had God goggles. Okay, In other words, he was God, so he knew He could like read people's minds and he could know things. He knew he was the son of God because he was God. I don't buy that because the scripture says, yes, Jesus was fully divine in his nature. He came as God. He did not take off his God nature, but he did lay aside that nature. He did lay aside the rights and privileges that came with that nature. He emptied himself and he came to earth as a fully human person. Fully God, fully man. But he lived as a human. So if he knew something, it was because the Father revealed it to him in the same way that the Father can reveal it to you and I. He came as our example. He did not come as a God example for us. He came as our example, human example for us. And so he didn't put these God goggles on. He lived his life. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says Jesus had to grow in wisdom. And so I believe the scripture shows us Jesus learned, Jesus studied, Jesus prayed, Jesus memorized, Jesus obeyed. And if we will humble ourselves and pray like he did, if we will study the word like he did, if we will learn like he did, if we will walk out the word like he did, if we will spend time with the Father like he did, we can live like he did. Amen. That's a great place to say amen. So I say that to set the stage for the triumphal entry because Matthew chapter 21 is the story of Jesus ride we call it the triumphal entry which is so bizarre and I just realized how bizarre that was because it, it, this is not really triumphal in the way that it's they're thinking it is okay so Matthew chapter 21 Jesus is coming into Jerusalem during the Passover ironically the Passover for the Jew is very, very, very similar to Independence Day for the American, okay? Because Passover is the celebration of the liberation of slavery from their lives, okay? I know there's a history of slavery. We had slaves here. That's not what I meant. So you have to kind of compartmentalize a little bit here today. So we were, we were set free from Great Britain. You know, we came on into our own independence for the Jew... They were set free from the Egyptian empire. They were brought out of that empire, and they were brought into a land. And so Passover is the commemoration of that. But now the nation of Israel is in the hands of the Roman Empire. And this area of the world has always been, and at this time is still, um, a hotbed of problem. There is tension like nobody's business in the Middle East, and there always has been. This is the the crossroads of the known world, if you will. And so Rome knows that this is a troubled spot, and they sent Herod there. Herod the Great ruled this area better than anyone of any time outside of King Solomon. Herod was the best. He rebuilt the temple. He established the Jewish practices. He appeased the Jews enough to keep peace. And he ruled with a strong enough hand to keep peace with the Romans. So he was brilliant. Some of his architecture was brilliant. He was brilliant. Unfortunately, he set up the Sadducees. Well, not at the time. He set up the Sadducees and the chief priests to be in charge of the temple. And they started just like the Pharisees we talked about last week. They started really good, but they didn't stay that way. And then at his death, they had to divide up that land, not just to one son, but to many of his sons. And that was never as good as when Herod was in charge. (coughs) Excuse me. And so the turmoil in that region caused Caesar to put in a guy named Pontius Pilate. You know Pontius Pilate from the Bible? Okay, here he is, Pontius Pilate. So whenever there's a feast, Pontius Pilate, who lives in Caesarea Philippi, to the north of Jerusalem, would ride into Jerusalem for every feast because feasts are problems because a lot of Jews are coming into the area. The, the population of um, Jerusalem at this time would have been about 40,000 people. During a feast, it would grow to about 250,000 people, because four times a year, all the Jews travel to Jerusalem for the feast to make sacrifices in the temple, and crazy stuff happens, especially during Passover. I mean, imagine a four-glass-of-wine feast commemorating God delivering you from the greatest superpower in the world, Egypt, and what might happen when people get that much wine in them and they get to remembering what God does and they're under the rule of a superpower. Yeah, and there were always revolts that sprang up out of the feast, especially among the zealots. Okay, So this is why um, Pontius Pilate would come into this area and he would stay at Herod's palace in Jerusalem. But he would come in with soldiers, with banners, with riding on a white stallion, he would come in with a show of force because he's trying to squelch any ideas these guys might have. They would also crucify insurrectionists on the road leading into the city. Yeah, insurrectionists. We were taught that Jesus was crucified with thieves. That word thieves doesn't necessarily mean thieves in the way that we think about it. In fact, we're, we don't have proof that the Romans crucified thieves. We have proof that the Romans crucified Treasonist traitors or insurrectionists, terrorists. That's who they crucified. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified for being an insurrectionist. I mean, he claimed to be a king. And we have no king but Caesar. Oh, so the chief priests know exactly what they're doing too. Jesus knows what he's doing. Chief priests know what they're doing. Pilate eh, didn't know what he was doing, but his wife tried to warn him. Uh, He listened a little bit, but not so much. So Pilate enters the city from the west, show a force. Jesus is about to enter from the east. We don't know if they entered on the same day. That would be kind of cool. But we know that they at least entered the same week because they're both coming for Passover. And Jesus could have, we believe, entered on Lamb Selection Day. So for the Passover, when you choose your lamb for the Passover, because you, it's so cool, you, you you choose a lamb and it becomes a part of your family for a couple days, and then you kill it and you eat it for Passover. That's great. And that's the Jewish festival of Passover. So, I know, it's terrible. So we get a clear picture in Matthew 21 of two kingdoms colliding. The kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of empire, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Shalom of peace. And all throughout the Bible, I would argue these are the two kingdoms that are always at war. There's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of empire, and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world uses fear, or it moves with fear. The kingdom of God is about trust. The kingdom of the world uses force. It uses a stick to get you to do. I mean, even the Bible says that, you know, you've been given authorities on earth and they have a stick to punish you because they want to they force you to be good. Okay, that's how empire works, and that's how it's supposed to work. Trust is the kingdom of God, and invitation is how God works, and He uses His voice. God doesn't use a stick. He uses His voice. The kingdom of empire is all about self-preservation. The kingdom of God is all, all about self-sacrifice. So, we see these two kingdoms all throughout the Bible. In fact, when God sets up his people, he wants them to be a kingdom of priests unto him, to put him on display in this part of the world. And what do they want? We want a king. We want to be like the other nations of the world. We want to be an empire. And God's like, give them what they want. It's not going to go well, because empire can never go well, it was never meant to be the way. Why didn't God just force Adam and Eve not to eat in the garden? Because he gave them his voice. He invited them. Come into my kingdom. Here's how my kingdom operates. And they chose to do it their own way. And that's what God's people have been doing all along. God's trying to get us to live in the kingdom of God in trust, invitation, voice, self-sacrifice. And we keep choosing fear, force, stick, and self-preservation. That's what's happening, and I, I, I did not plan to preach this on July 4th. It just kind of fell that way, um, and in some ways, I'm a little nervous that it did, and in some ways, it's kind of ironic, and so I don't know what to, to totally do with that. But as we go through this, um, I want you to keep in mind this scripture verse. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, it's on the screen for you. It says, be careful, Jesus said, be on the guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, we talked about that last week. The Pharisees, the zeal for the Lord without mercy for people, that's what Jesus kept condemning them for. It's not that you don't, I mean, they had a zeal for the law. They had a zeal to keep the law. They had a zeal for the Lord. But Jesus was like, do what they say because they sit in Moses' seat, but don't do what they do because they don't fulfill it. They don't walk it out. They have the right words. They have the right orthodoxy. They have right doctrine, but they're not practicing it. They're not loving. They're not showing mercy. They're, they're twisting it for self-preservation, not using it for self-sacrifice. They're putting heavy demands on people but not helping anyone carry those demands. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. And this week we're going to look at the Sadducees because the Sadducees are in Jerusalem. Okay, the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not like each other. They do not agree on anything. Okay, the only thing they agreed on is neither of them like Jesus. That was what they agreed on. That's it. Um, but the Pharisees are like the group of people that are in the synagogues. They're with the common people. They study the law. They teach the law to the people. They're but they're in the Galilee. They don't want to be a part of the Roman Empire. They believe Roman Empire is corrupt. So the Sadducees are part of the Roman Empire. Pharisees don't want any part of that. They're on their own. And Jesus has been living with them in the Galilee, basically the country. Okay, so think of Jerusalem, the Sadducees as the city. Uh, The educated, the college professors, we've got 16 doctorates, we're like wealthy, um, and we look down on the people from the Galilee because you're uneducated, you're the lower class, and you're nothing. Uh, We are Jerusalem, we have the temple, we are where God resides, we are the people, you are not. Okay, so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's coming into a whole new world than he's been a part of over the last three years, so think about that as we come into Matthew chapter um, 21, because Jesus comes in, and sometimes we've been taught that Jesus comes in, and he's teaching this message about love, and he's teaching this message about um, peace, and and he's teaching all these things, and and then the the chief priest gets the crowds to turn on him, and that's not what happened at all, because Jesus, when he first comes in, we're going to read here in just a second, he's pretty much unknown. The people in Jerusalem are like, we don't know who you are. Who is this Jesus guy? Like, this prophet from Galilee, the the country bumpkin up here. And so we sometimes think Jesus comes in teaching this message, but everything Jesus does that week is intentional. And he does it all to bring to light the corruption that's a part of the, the temple and also to get himself killed. Jesus did it to get himself killed. He knew what would happen when he did this. Not because he had God goggles, but because he knew the scripture. But because he knew the corruption, because he knew his identity that was revealed to him by the Father, this is my son, and with him I am well pleased, he knew that. And because of that, he could live this out. So Matthew 21, here we go. Verse 1, when they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. So they're at the top of the Mount of Olives, at this city called Bethpage. Jesus sends two disciples, says to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. And now we like to read that and think, wow, Jesus saw that or Jesus set this up. Okay, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Jesus actually went into that village, saw that donkey, said, hey, can I use that? And the guy's like, sure. Okay, I mean, we think everything is supernatural. But can I tell you, the Bible is far more practical sometimes than we give it credit for. And then we expect supernatural and God's asking us to do something practical. I believe in the supernatural, but I also believe we have to do some things that are practical. So, verse 3. If anyone says anything, just say the Lord needs them. He will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. (laughs) So here comes Pilate on the west side, white stallion, force, pomp, And here comes Jesus on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. And this is a prophetic word. This is from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And You can write these down. We're not going to read them, but Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 and 10 and Zechariah 14 3 through 16. What Jesus is doing is what David did when he came back from Absalom pushing him out of Jerusalem and David comes into the city. Same road. Down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, riding a donkey with the people cheering and shouting. And the words of Zechariah are, your king is going to come. Your Messiah is going to come. He's going to come triumphant. He's going to come victorious. He's going to go forth and fight the nations. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. All his holy ones are going to be with him. And all the nations are going to come to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. And what do you do at the Festival of Tabernacles? Well, you have palm branches and you wave them. So why are they waving palm fronds when Jesus is coming into the city? John tells us that they're, wa- they're waving palm fronds. Matthew doesn't. Why does that happen? Well, let's, l- let's look at it. Let's read it. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey. They put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and then verse 9 the crowds that went ahead of him now these are his followers these are not just random people on the road these are people that have been with Jesus they've come with Jesus they're his they're his posse okay and they see what's happening they are looking at this you've got to understand the jews since exile have spent hundreds of years memorizing the bible they do not have chapters and verses they, we have put chapters and verses in our Bible to make it easier for Westerners to read and understand because we like chapters and we like verses and we like lines, okay? That it's not bad. It's very helpful to understand so that we don't have to just come here today. I can say go to Matthew 21 and poof, you go. Or you just rely on the screen because it's there. And so in what's happening here for Jesus is because they've got the Scripture memorized, as soon as Jesus gets on a donkey, they know what's happening. And if they don't know what's happening, someone beside them knows, and they're telling them he's the Messiah. He's going into Jerusalem. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna set us free from the Roman empires. So they get palm branches. He's gonna make everyone celebrate the festival of Tabernacles, even during Passover. And he's bringing it all together. Hosanna! God save us! God destroy our enemies! Woo! And there's a celebration, and it's very Pentecostal. And we're like, yeah, we're like, see, Pentecost is in the Bible even before. And it's just great until you go to Luke's gospel, man. Because in Luke's gospel, he gives us something that we don't get from Matthew. On his way in, if you've never been to, to Jerusalem and you've never been to the Mount of Olives, it's not a mountain. It's like a big hill. OK, so I grew up in Pennsylvania and there are bigger hills in the town I grew up in than the Mount of Olives. And <laughs> so I'm just telling you, it's just a big hill. And we walked down into Jerusalem, and you can see across the valley, and you can see the Temple Mount, and you can see the city, and it's a great, it's a beautiful view. It is beautiful. It's breathtaking. And to think (laughs) that Jesus did this at that view, um, when you're there and standing there, it's just, you can't even put it into words. And so, Jesus comes near, Luke chapter 19, this is where we are in the story, but Luke's version. As he came near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but they are now hidden from your eyes. See, when they're waving palm fronds, they, the palm frond is actually the symbol of the zealot, the people that were killing Jews that weren't holy enough and they were killing Romans and they were helping Jesus or helping God bring his kingdom. It's about victory. It's about conquering. At some point in the Roman Empire, we don't know exactly when it was instituted, it became a crucifiable offense to wave a palm frond in Jerusalem during a feast. So what they're saying is Jesus is coming in the city. He is overthrowing Rome, and they are glad. Oh, they are glad that the Romans are finally getting what's coming to them. And Jesus is sobbing. Literally, the word for for wept is he's sobbing. He's sobbing. He's heaving. And all around him, there's this great party and this celebration. And he, does anyone see that Jesus is weeping? Somebody had to see it because it's recorded. The, but just like everything else Jesus did, they're like, well, I don't get it. Uh, you know, Jesus, we, I don't get you. <laughs> I mean, the disciples never got him until he was resurrected and ascended. And then the Holy Spirit came and they're like, oh, <laughs> they, they start to get it. But he's weeping. Because what makes for peace? Jesus is not coming to institute an empire. His kingdom is the kingdom of Shalom, it's the total opposite of empire. He is not coming to set up the dynasty of Solomon again. That's not even what he wanted. He's coming in the order of King David, if you will, a man after his own heart. He's not coming to destroy his enemies, he's coming to give his life for his enemies. And he's coming to establish a kingdom in that order. See, if you read Zechariah 9 and, 9 and 10, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the fowl of a donkey. Yeah, verse 10. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be cut off, and he will command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and rivers at the ends of the earth. And so even today, I think as believers, we have a hard time embracing the kingdom of God. Because I I know there are times I find myself clutching a palm frond, shouting for revolution that would come and give the type of power and might that I want the type of security that I want, the power, the influence, the self-preservation. And I don't realize that's not the institution that Jesus came to set up. Now, I know that this is Independence Day and we celebrate our country and we celebrate our freedoms and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to be sure That we are not taking the kingdom of empire of America, which is a kingdom of this world. It just is because it's not the kingdom of God. And we're not trying to mix it too much with the kingdom of God. Because that's what the Sadducees were doing. They were trying to work with Rome the best they could to make a best life for themselves. There are actually homes of the priests, the chief priests, that have been excavated in Jerusalem. 6,000 square feet homes for the priest. And far too many of us, I think, identify more by our political leanings than we do by our allegiance to King Jesus. And now... This is the tension of the kingdom because some of you are like, Are you saying we shouldn't love our country? No, you should. We we as a church work for the peace and prosperity of our city. We do stuff. Yesterday, we handed out free snow cones at the park on the 4th of July to celebrate, and people kept trying to give us money. No, we want to give you a snow cone because we want to make this party here in the park the best it can be because we work for the peace and prosperity of our city. This is a part of who we are. So yes, we should do that, but at the same time, we operate under kingdom values. So Jesus comes into the the city, Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil. Some of you say the whole city was stirred. The the word is stronger than stirred. It's literally in turmoil. Like they don't know what to do with this because they all recognize what's happening. This is the the Messiah from Galilee? What? What? Like, who is this guy? That's what they're asking. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Strike two. Nazareth? What could possibly come from Nazareth? Galilee? This isn't the Messiah. Why is he doing this? Why is this happening? There's turmoil. And you'll watch all week long as Jesus begins to teach, he begins to win over the crowds of Jerusalem. And a lot of times we've preached that the crowds cried Hosanna on Sunday and crucify on Friday. False. Jesus won over the crowds in Jerusalem with his teaching. The reason, over and over again, you'll see the chief priests wanted to lay hold of him by force, but they couldn't because of the crowds, because of the crowds, because of the crowds, because of the crowds. They loved him. They loved this Jesus. They loved this message. But when did the chief priests come to arrest him (laughs) under the cover of night? When did they take him before Pilate? Before anyone knew what was happening. They arrested him, they crucified, or they charged him, they tried him, and they crucified him before anyone was even awake and understood what was happening because they feared the crowds. Yeah, there was a crowd of people. It's the seven chief priest families and the temple guards that are standing there crying out for Jesus to be crucified because he claimed to be a king. And he was a king. So Jesus, in this moment, coming into the city in verse 12, enters the temple, and he drives out those who are buying and selling. And now what's happening here, people are buying and selling in the table. And I, I don't know if you grew up this way, but I grew up in church. We sold candy bars to go to camp, and they were always like, you're not allowed to sell them in the sanctuary, okay? The Bible says you cannot make God's house a marketplace. Do not sell them in the in the sanctuary. And that totally is the, could be the farthest thing from what Jesus is doing here. Um, this is how... We misuse scripture for self-preservation, okay? It has absolutely nothing to do with kids selling candy bars in the sanctuary. What was happening is you had to come to Jerusalem. Remember, 200,000 people traveled to come make sacrifices. And rather than bring your sacrifice, you buy it in the temple. Well, guess who's in charge of that? The chief priest. Guess who sets the price? The chief priest. You might have brought an animal with you. Oh, that one is not clean. You can buy one from us, though. Guess who sets that price? The chief priest. Guess who was charging enough prices to make a 6,000 square foot home? The chief priest. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're trying to... If they were actually trying to serve their fellow Jews and selling, and they were selling it in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the outsider was supposed to be able to come into the temple, that's as far as they could go, but at least they could come in and they could worship God from a distance. And they can't come in because the chief priests have established a system that there's no room for them at the temple. And when Jesus overturns these tables of the money changers and the tables of those who sold doves, interestingly, the only thing Matthew tells us is that it's the people who sold doves. Do you know who bought doves for sacrifice? The poor. Because they couldn't afford it. If you can't afford a lamb, you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb at Passover. But if you can't afford it, buy a dove. And Jesus, Matthew is emphasizing what Jesus is doing here. You've neglected the poor. And he flips over tables because he's so angry at what is happening. The very people that are supposed to be able to come near are being kept out. And then he says, famous words, it's written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Then look at this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. When Jesus starts doing this, the blind and the lame realize, I can come in. They're not allowed. You're not allowed in here. You're blind. You're lame. You're a foreigner. You're a eunuch. You're these, you're these people. You have to stay out. You're not clean. And this entire system has been set up. And now I've heard this prayer taught. that, And I've, I have even preached this sermon myself. Because I love Jim Simbola and I got it from him. And he, there, see, and God said, my house will be a house of prayer, not a house of preaching, not a house of worship. Not a, and we have now set up this dichotomy where prayer is more important than preaching. and Prayer is more important than worship, and you've got to pray. And, and that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not just that his house is a house of prayer. If you go back to Isaiah 56 and you read Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, that's what Jesus is alluding to. And the moment he says house of prayer... The Jews who have the scripture memorized will go to Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, and they'll read about the foreigner and the eunuch who get to come into my house, and they get to offer acceptable sacrifices in my house because my house of prayer is a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. I'm bringing everybody in. That's been his plan all along. Uh, he's wanted to have a people at the crossroads of the world that lived so set apart, that lived so differently, that it drew people in, and what they had become is a people that actually kept people out. And we need to be careful that we know what we're doing. Well Pastor Tom, are we never supposed to talk about sin? No, we're supposed to talk about sin. Are we never supposed to preach that people are sinners? No, we are supposed to preach that people are sinners, but we better be careful. That we're not keeping people out that Jesus is calling in. And this is messier than we want it to be. We want black and white. It's black and white. It's easier black and white. And Jesus is like, it's not that way. I have come to make a way. In Jeremiah chapter 7, if you read chapter 7, we don't have time to read it together, but if you read verses 9 through 14, Jeremiah 7, 9 through 14, that's where you get den of robbers. And what's happening in Jeremiah 7 is that the people are the priests are stealing and murdering and committing adultery and swearing falsely and making offerings to Baal, and they're doing all this stuff, but they're saying, We're safe and yet doing these things because of the house of the Lord. It's the house of the Lord. And Jeremiah prophesies that God's going to destroy the temple, which he does when Jeremiah prophesies it. And he says, go look at what I did at Shiloh. If you remember, when the Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh and the enemies of the people of Israel were at war and they brought, go, we're losing. Go get the Ark. Go get the Ark. And they bring the Ark into the camp and the Israelites create such a loud noise that the ground shakes and the Philistines are afraid for their lives. Because the ark of their God has entered the camp. And you know what happens? They lost that battle and the ark of God was captured. Because the people were living in rebellion to God and they were using him for self-preservation. He called them to be a kingdom of priests that lay down their lives for the foreigner, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the outsider. Bring them in. Live such great lives. Leave leave things in your fields for them to gather so that you draw them in, draw them in, draw them in. Let them see who I am. Live in such a way that they see who I am. And what they did when they came back from exile because they were so afraid of messing up again that they wanted to keep the law so perfectly that they ended up keeping out the very people Jesus was telling them to let in. I wish we had time to finish reading through the the chapter 21, but Jesus, it's interesting. The the children are like um, saying Hosanna to the son of David and the chief priests are like, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is like, have you ever read your Bible? (laughs) Do not miss the irony of Jesus. He just asked the chief priests if they ever read the Bible. In the Psalms, it says that you have ordained praises from the lips of infants. So Jesus points them to a scripture that makes it legit. Then he curses this fig tree, and we're all like, boom. Fig tree cursed. Wow, Jesus is having a real re- weird random day. As a rabbi, him cursing a tree is telling a story. And what he has just done in the temple, he came to the fig tree. He wanted to see fruit. There was no fruit on it, and he cursed it and it died. And the disciples don't say, Wow, how did that tree die? They say, Why did it how did it die so quickly? Because they understand that Jesus is pronouncing a curse on the chief priests and the temple sacrifices. Not the temple itself, what the temple has become. Okay? He's not against the temple. He's against the temple being an empire, the temple being for self-preservation and not for self-sacrifice, not being shalom, not being his kingdom. So he curses the fig tree and it withers immediately. And Jesus teaches them, you know what? If you have faith, you can say to this mountain, And he points to the temple, on the temple mount. And you can say, be cast into the sea. See, this corruption that you see, if you have faith and you believe, you can say, move. Not because you're going to ask me to do something and I'm going to do it, but you are going to become my house of prayer for all peoples. And when you ask and partner with me, you can do. I've got one more point that I need to make, and I'm going to make it as quickly as I can. Because this idea of a house of prayer is super important for us to, to look at. Because we look at prayer, I think, differently than they looked at prayer in this day. We look at prayer as me asking God to do something and then God acting on my behalf. And I'm not going to say that's not what prayer is. But that's, that's like Isaiah chapter um, 64. Isaiah 64 says, Oh God, I wish you would rend the heavens and come down and make the earthquake, and all the people would see you, and it would be great. I wish you would do that again. And I'm here to tell you, he's not going to do that again because he already did it. He opened the heavens, and he came down in the person of Jesus Christ, and he gave his life for you and I to be brought back in as sons and daughters of God and to bring the kingdom everywhere we go. That's a house of prayer. Our house of prayer ought to be more in line with Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 61 through C says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Hasn't come down out of anywhere, it's risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness will cover the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will appear over you. And nations shall come to your light and to the brightness of your dawn. See, we try to get the nations to come to us. We try to force our influence. We don't have to force anything. Or when we do get influence with kings, we compromise our values because we want to keep influence with the king because we don't want to lose that influence. We don't want to lose the political influence we have. We have to maybe just make a couple small compromises. They're not big compromises. And hey, the, the, the greater good is accomplished. Ouch. As if the God who gave us influence can't keep us in that place of influence. But if you want the glory of the Lord to rise on you, then you've got to come into his house as his people and do it his way. Not establishing for yourselves a kingdom of empire of self-preservation, but living in a sacrificial way of laying our lives down. See, some of us today might be tempted to start overturning some tables. But before you overturn a table, make sure you, you know what's coming. Because in the, in the Christian church today, I fear that we start flipping over tables and we're so angry and self-righteous in our speeches and our, our, our Facebook posts and we're just out there ticking people off. And then when people get angry at us, we don't lay down our lives for those people like Jesus did. We don't know what we're doing. I mean, if you want to flip over tables, then let them crucify you, and the whole time they do, say, Father, forgive them, for they, I, they do not know what they do. Ouch. That's the kingdom Jesus came to institute. But I don't like that kingdom. Because that's a costly kingdom. And So I want us to be sure, before we start flipping over tables, that we know what we're doing. Today, I want to end with the Lord's Prayer, and we're just going to pray it together um, in just a moment. But I want to talk about it, and then we're going to pray it. Because when we pray, it's not about just asking God to act. Prayer, yes, asks God to act, but prayer is also about the glory of the Lord rising on me. So prayer is about me being transformed as I pray so that I can then become the answer to my prayer. God doesn't want to act apart from you in your life. He doesn't want to you to say, hey God, I need you to do this thing in my life and okay, I'll just do it. He wants to put in you what needs to be done so that his kingdom shows up in your workplace. Oh God, if you could just change the heart of my boss. No, you do that. You bring the kingdom. You bring the self-sacrificing, peace-loving, laying down your life leading with your voice, trusting that I'm working even though it looks like I'm not, you trust that kingdom. But if you want to cling to your rights and privileges, that's something I didn't do, Jesus says. So I'm not sure I can help you there. But if you lay your life down, I'll be there. Ooh, this is good stuff. I know. I'll just encourage myself today. Okay, so we know how the Lord's Prayer starts, right? Our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. When you pray that, you're getting your identity. Our Father. One in community. It's not my Father. My Father in heaven, it's our Father. I'm in community with other believers. In heaven. I'm your son. And if you just get your, if you didn't pray anything but our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. I need your identity. Because I don't want to act as anything but your son today. I want to represent you. I want your name to be hallowed in my life. It's not about me saying, God, I want, oh, cause the sinners to hallow your name. <laughs> Arise and shine. Make me make my life so much that I hallow your name that people are drawn. Kings are drawn. They want to know, how'd you do that? Well, let me tell you, I just laid down my life. <laughs> oh, I don't want that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's a request and it's also, God, help me to live my life today bringing your kingdom everywhere. Whether it's giving a glass of cold water to someone or a prophetic word to someone. Whether it's laying hands on someone who's sick and saying, be healed in the name of Jesus or just giving a soft answer that turns away wrath. It's all the kingdom and I bring the kingdom. and I fear in church, we're praying week after week, we even call our prayer time house of prayer and we get there every week and we pray and pray for God to act and then I fear that when we go out of house of prayer all week long we live in a way that actually nullifies the request we ask for God bring your kingdom and then we operate in kingdom of empire not kingdom of God we act more in self preservation than we do self sacrifice then look at this give us our daily bread that's not just about saying God give me what I need today It's about learning to live not just by what I need, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Meaning, if I don't have what I need today, God's my supply, and I don't have to try to find a way to get it for myself. I have to learn how to trust Him. Trust. Forgive us our debts. Praise God. We need to pray that every day. Amen? But how about this part? As we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, if God answers that prayer and only forgives in the same way we have forgiven others, how much forgiveness can He lavish on you? Well, I need to do something there. And do not bring us into this time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus prayed that. Oh, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. So it's not wrong to say... Don't bring me into the time of trial. But when I go into the time of trial, deliver me from the evil one. Not my will, but yours be done. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. Amen. You guys have been great. You have held in with me. I know I went a little long today. I want to give you three questions to write down and ponder, and then we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And... Um, hopefully Christina can get the Lord's Prayer up on the screen for us too when we pray it again in case you don't know it. And it's not bad if you don't know it. So that's okay. But I want you to think of three things as you go through this week. One, am I following the right Messiah? Am I following the right Jesus? Or am I looking for Jesus to be a type of Messiah that is more self-preserving than self-sacrificing? Because Jesus said, come follow me, and then he went to the cross. And then he said, take up your cross. If you don't do it, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of my kingdom. My kingdom is a high value, and you've got to lay your life down. Am I seeking the right kingdom? And am I a house of prayer for all peoples? Am I a house of prayer? Am I, am I drawing people into the presence of God with the way I live my life? Are kings coming to my light? Are people coming to my life? And if not, it's easy for us to develop this theology that says, oh, but Jesus said the world would hate you. And that's true. But let's make sure the world hates us because of we're following in the footsteps of this Messiah, Jesus, who laid his life down. And let's make sure that the world doesn't hate us because we're living in a self-preserving, hypocritical lifestyle. Because it could be either one. And that's the tension. So three things for us to ponder. As we go through the week, don't just assume that there's no yeast of Pharisee or yeast of Sadducees in our lives. And let's close today just by saying the the Lord's Prayer. We don't have to have music. We're not going to have music. We're just going to pray. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together, understanding what we're praying. And let's pray. All right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. Amen. Amen. God, give us grace to live it out this week. Amen. Thank you guys for being here, for spending your holiday weekend with us. Uh, apologize for going a little bit over. Don't forget, if you've got offering, you can give online. Text 84321. Today's our global outreach offering day. Or you, There are offering baskets at the table in the back. Um, t-shirts are for sale in the back again as well. And uh, if you're a guest, stop by the table. We've got a gift for you. God bless you as you go. Have a happy 4th of July.